Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's episode, where well, we are talking about a massive statue from ancient history, a colossal statue, a wonder of the ancient world, the Colossus of Rhodes, that when it was standing upright, dominated the island bastion of Rhodes in the Eastern Mediterranean. The story of this ancient wonder is incredible. Of those seven iconic ancient monuments, the Colossus of Rhodes is my personal favourite wonder, so I'm delighted that for the first ever of our Ancients episodes about the wonders of the ancient world, don't worry, we will be doing more in the future, I'm delighted we're able to kick it off with the Colossus, the mighty Colossus. Its legacy in ancient history, after it fell down, a little hint there, is remarkable, as is its legacy in more recent times. You might, some of you, have watched Lord of the Rings, where they go past those mighty statues, the Argonath, down the river Anduin. Or you might have watched Game of Thrones, when some of them visit the city of Bravos, and to enter the harbour, they go through the legs of a mighty colossal statue, overlooking the entrance to this maritime city-state. Well, the real inspiration for that was the Colossus of Rhodes. Whether the Colossus actually stood at the forefront of the Rhodian harbour is debated, as you're going to hear, but it's a fascinating story, from the story behind why this colossal statue was built, to who it represents, to its falling down, and then to its legacy after this bronze mega statue collapsed. Now, to talk through all of this, I was delighted to get on the podcast an old professor of mine from the University of Edinburgh. He is, I think it's fair to say, one of the leading lights, one of the leading experts in Hellenistic history. He was also a great influence on me and my love of Hellenistic history at Edinburgh University is why I think this period of antiquity is so fascinating. His name is Andrew Erskine, Professor Andrew Erskine. I've been wanting to get Andrew on the podcast for a while now, and I'm delighted that he is now featuring as our special guest for this episode today. So without further ado, to talk all about the Colossus of Rhodes, here's Andrew. Andrew, 
It is a pleasure. Long time no see. We finally got you on The Ancients. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me on it. You're more than welcome. And it's a pleasure to have you on for such an incredible topic too. The Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, my personal favourite. But it also feels like one of the shortest lived wonders too, doesn't it? Yes, it's up for either 56 or 66 years, depending which reading you take which is not a long time. Though I kind of wonder whether, I mean, it's around for a lot longer after that in a broken form and whether it just continued as a wonder even so. You know, it was a wonder even in its collapsed state. And that's something we're definitely going to delve into. You are a leading light and expert on the Hellenistic world. For the background of the Colossus of Rhodes, let's delve into the late 4th century BC. Set the scene for us, Andrew. The Eastern Mediterranean at that time, before construction of the Colossus of Rhodes begins, what does this immediate post-Alexander the Great world look like? Well, I suppose the first thing you actually have to do is think about Alexander the Great, because a city like Rhodes, I mean, it's a island city. If you went back to the 5th century, then you'd have three cities on Rhodes. They amalgamate at the end of the 5th century. Rhodes is an important place in the 4th century, but it changes with Alexander because what Alexander does is he transforms that whole Eastern Mediterranean so that if you went in the 5th century, Rhodes near Asia Minor would be on the periphery. But once Alexander comes along and it stretches the kind of Greco-Macedonian world as far as Afghanistan, Rhodes is no longer on the edge. A place like Athens, which was previously central, now becomes more peripheral because Alexander creates a world which is then, he conquers the Persian Empire and then that empire, or now Alexander's empire, is split up into, well, at first, the kind of, sort of warlord states, I suppose, rather than kingdoms because they're not kings yet, fighting amongst themselves. And it's in that context that Rhodes starts emerging as a more important state. It's on the kind of shipping lanes moving up from the sort of eastern Mediterranean, from Egypt, Syria, up the coast of Asia Minor. And it's able to exploit that. It also is kind of cautious not to align too strongly with any one state. So that is the situation. And little less than 20 years after the death of Alexander, as these warlords are fighting amongst themselves for this empire, one of the leading figures, Demetrius Polyerkates, son of a man evocatively called Antigonus the One-Eyed, he lays siege to Rhodes to try and bring Rhodes onto his side. Rhodes, if anything, was probably more friendly with the Egyptian king Ptolemy. He's another one of Alexander's generals. And this siege by Demetrius of Rhodes is one of the sort of great sieges of antiquity. Uh, it lasts about a year. It's from 305, 304, I think. I'm always a little bit hesitant about dates. And it's famous for its length, but also for the fact, and this is one of the, which is what sort of earns Demetrius's name, Polyerkates, which means the besieger. It's famous for his tremendous siege engines, which if we think about sort of things that people sort of bring up to siege a city, we might think about sort of large towers or whatever. I mean, but these were on a scale hitherto unknown, and there were lots of them bringing up to the walls of Rhodes. And they were known as the Elopolis city takers, I suppose, or city capturers is the name which they were given. Although in this case, 
they didn't end up capturing Rhodes, and it was a negotiated settlement. Andrew, it is such an incredible story of that siege, the siege of Rhodes, as you say, because it is very much this David versus Goliath situation, Demetrius, with all of the stuff that he has available, yeah. and yet the Rhodians, they are able to resist. This is a big moment in Rhodian history. They're now, you know, this jewel in the crown of all of these warlords, and it is still able to hold its own against someone as massive as Demetrius, this feels like a seismic moment for the city. I think so, yes. And I mean, when they come to build the Colossus, it's partly a kind of gift to the patron deity of the city, which is Helios, the sun. And it's several sources connect the building of it with their liberation from the siege. And so therefore, regarding the actual construction of the Colossus in the wake of this siege, their deliverance from Demetrius... It seems a massive project to undertake. Do we have any idea how the Rhodians, how they fund it, how they're able to support the construction of this massive statue? Well, one thing which is mentioned in the sources is that they take advantage of Demetrius's siege engines, which he's left lying around. He doesn't take away with them. And as I said, they're large, about 22 metres, the base, a square of about 22 metres, reaching a height of about 44 metres. What's that? 140 feet, something like that? Yeah, several stories high at least, isn't it? These are absolutely massive beasts of siege engines. So they are used to help build the Colossus. Well, what we're told by Pliny is that they were able to sell these and use the funds. We're not told who bought them. It may be that, you know, they're sort of stripped down, used as scrap. There would have been lots of iron on them. They're protected by iron, we're told. So maybe the iron was recycled into the Colossus. I mean, the Colossus itself is made of bronze. But there will be a sort of mixture of different metals used. So, I mean, that would be one thing. It's probably also a sign of the increasing wealth of roads in this period as well, that they are able to fund this. You mentioned how in the wake of Alexander's empire and following his death, how places like Athens are no longer the centre and now it's going a bit more eastwards. So because of that, should we be imagining the trade routes at this time. Lots and lots of ships going from places like the Aegean, from Athens to Syria, to new emerging places, to Tyre and Cyprus and so on. So these ships, the shipping routes, they are using somewhere like Rhodes as a key maritime trading centre, a base through which lots of this commerce comes through. Yes, I think so. And uh, I mean, the shipping between Rhodes and Alexandria was a particularly important route. And Rhodes itself, the city, has a whole string of harbours all around it. So it's a very protected place to bring your ships to. You mentioned also sources, our sources for the Colossus of Rhodes. What sorts of sources do we have available? Is it mainly literature? Yes. And one of the things is that it's not like, I'm thinking about wonders of the world, it's not like the Pharos lighthouse in Alexandria, where there are large lumps of stone which are associated with it. Bronze, of course, gets melted down eventually. So no, we have no archaeological remains of it. What we have is literary accounts. And we have no contemporary literary accounts as well. What we have is, there's possibly a verse written during its lifetime, so to speak. But everything else is after the collapse of the Colossus. And I say it last 56, 60, 60. We know it fell in the 220s. How interesting. This verse that you allude to there, is this the so-called the dedicatory poem that was often associated with the Colossus of Rhodes that some believe is, well, potentially was on the base of this massive statue? That's right, yeah. I mean, it's a poem contained in what's called the Palatine Anthology. And I don't think we know who wrote it. And it often is said to be, I mean, there's no direct evidence that it was inscribed on it. It's a poem written as if it perhaps it was inscribed on it. But people could do that as a sort of poetic exercise. It doesn't mean that it necessarily was. So there's argument over 
I mean, if it was inscribed of it, obviously contemporary, but some people suggest it's actually a verse written in the second century BC. Apart from that, probably the earliest mention of it is Polybius writing in the mid-2nd century. And after that, we find quite a lot of references to it. But what that means is we don't have a description of it as it stood, of what it looked like. We know about how it's put together, you know, the circumstances of its building. We know about the circumstances of its fall. But the period between is a little vague. Vague and frustrating. Over on the Warfare podcast by History Hit, we bring you brand new military histories from around the world. Each week, twice a week, we release new episodes with world-leading historians, expert policymakers, and the veterans who served. From the greatest tanks of the Second World War. And so what are you actually trying to get out of your tank? You're trying to get manoeuvrability and you're trying to get a really big gun. Your Tiger and your Panther are there to dominate the battlefield, primarily on the Eastern Front and in the North Africa and all that sort of stuff. But by the time they're actually coming in in decent numbers, that moment has already passed. Through to new histories that help us understand current conflicts. Any invader, any attacker, any adversary will exploit gaps within society. It was true then, it's true today. But the Finns signaled that they were united, and I think that's what the Ukrainians should signal today too. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts, and join us on the front lines of military history. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Because if we go on a slight tangent, because I know you've written about this as well, like the funeral carriage of Alexander the Great, where we have that incredible detailed description of it surviving from a similar time from later sources. The fact that we don't have a similar thing for the Colossus of Rose must be incredibly frustrating. But do we know a bit from these later literary sources, let's say around the construction of it itself? You mentioned it's made of bronze, but do we know anything more about the whole construction process, let's say the time it took, the eventual size of this colossus and so on. Well, again, going to the road writer Pliny, he tells us it took 12 years to construct. I suppose one of the things we want to think about when thinking about its size is why they wanted to build such a large statue in the first place. I mean, people, maybe they tend to take for granted 
but it was exceptional statue. And I kind of wonder, you know, Rhodians walking around roads, they see these huge contraptions built by Demetrius, you know, and maybe when they're thinking about recognising their sort of salvation from Demetrius, they think they're thinking scale. You know, they're thinking of challenging Demetrius in some way, hence a huge statue to match his huge siege engines. The other thing about size is that we do know the name of the sculptor who created it, a man from Lindos. Lindos is another town in Rhodes. It's uh, Cherries of Lindos. We don't know much else about him, but we do know he was the pupil of Lysippus. Now, Lysippus is one of the most celebrated sculptors in the 4th century, celebrated for his work really creating the visual image of Alexander. He is supposed to be Alexander's favourite sculptor. But Lysippus worked all around the Greek world, not just for Alexander. And uh, he built colossal statues, not as big as this one, but he was famous for his two statues in Tarentum in South Italy, a statue of Zeus put up in Tarentum, a significant city in South Italy, another major trading centre, so a kind of landmark. The Colossus is 114 feet, something like that. Lysippus' statue, about 60 feet tall, so not as big, but that is still pretty substantial as a statue. So there may also be an element of competition here, you know, a bigger statue than Lysippus' statue built by the pupil of Lysippus. Interesting. So that is a potential influence. You see so many of these statues, don't you, that there's actually an influence from somewhere else. Yeah. And a rivalry between yeah. the person who initially taught him all the skills. I mean, that's fascinating. And I guess also when he is constructing this statue, is it completely bronze or is it kind of like so the statue of Zeus at Olympia or the statue of Athena Parthenos where it had a wooden frame or something underneath? Completely bronze. So they would, I mean, on the outside, obviously it has... Inside it has wood and iron and stone all holding it together. There is discussion about how it's built. Now, I don't understand a lot about how to build bronze sculptures, but as far as I can work out from the debate about it, there's a, a writer called Philo of Byzantium who wrote a work on the seven wonders of the world in like the second century BC. And this is attributed to him, but it's probably actually a late antique account, probably from the fourth, fifth century AD. But he has a sort of very vivid account of how it's built. And if I understand him correctly, he sees it as being built in sections, working their way up. And as they put each section on, they create a kind of pile of earth around the statue. And then they put another section on, then they create more earth around it to hold it in place and so on. Now, that's rejected by recent scholars as just not how they built bronze statues in the ancient world. What they do is they cast them in sections, like sort of arm or whatever it is, or half an arm, in casting pits. And there's evidence of quite large casting pits. And then they would put these bits together to create the whole statue. Don't ask me more about the details of how it's put together because <laughs> I don't really understand all that. No, fair enough, fair enough. It must have been, like for the time, in regards to bronze casting, one of the biggest undertakings ever done into that moment of ancient history given the size of it you know it is a colossus i will therefore not ask you any more about the actual building actually one actual thing which is interesting about the building the sculptor carries or cherries he would appear to have had a contract to produce it and there is a writer called sextus empiricus who's not interested in sculpture at all he's writing about mathematics and this kind of thing and he tells a story that the sculptor or architect or however we describe the person who creates something like this arranged the contract to build it at a certain height. And then the Rhodian said, no, we want it bigger. We want it bigger than that. <laughs> and so he said, well, I can do it twice the height, but it'll cost you twice as much. So they said, fine. But he realised as he was working on it that he made a mistake in that 
to build something twice the height uses, you know, it's not only twice as height, it's also bigger in all sorts of respects. And this is what Sextus Empiricus is interested in, uh, the proportions. You know, you're going to need, for twice the height, you might need eight times more than you make. You know, if you make a small thing, I don't know, like a little Lego figure, you use a certain amount of plastic. But if you were to make it twice the height or eight times the height, you wouldn't need eight times as much plastic because otherwise you'd just have like a pencil. You'd need a lot more. And he hadn't factored this in when he made this deal. And so he realised he was going bankrupt. And according to Sextus Empiricus, the consequence was he committed suicide. He may not have. It might have just been a, a mathematician's story, you know. But if you look at some accounts, we'll say it was begun by this man, Cherries, and it was continued by another man called Lakeys. Now, this is to some extent scholarly ingenuity at work here because there is another brief poem or epigram which attributes the sculpture to a man called Lakeys of Lindos. And so scholars put all these bits together and they say, well, he committed suicide. His pupil, Lakeys, continued to construct it, but probably the epigram's a mistake. Well, it's a cool story to include nonetheless. I'm glad you stopped me in my tracks and and we managed to get that in because I had no idea about that at all, Andrew. I mean, let's therefore delve into Rhodes' time in the third century when the Colossus is upright. Do we think it's in the harbour, I'm guessing? Are we imagining a massive statue overlooking the harbour so that sailors and ships, the first thing that they would see on the horizon, they would be able to spot this massive statue of the sun god Helios? Yes. Uh, Well, yes and no. Obviously, if you look at sort of these like medieval prints or sort of Renaissance prints, you have this figure uh, standing one foot on either side of the harbour and the ships going between, which I think I haven't really watched Game of Thrones, but I believe that there is a, a figure modelled on that in Game of Thrones. Yes. It's not like that. I mean, the most recent suggestion is that it stood uh, at the Temple of Helios, which is, I think, in the vicinity of the Acropolis. So it would, I imagine, have been visible from a distance. And anyway, Rhodes is described as like a looking like a kind of amphitheatre, I mean, or a theatre, so curving around. So we don't know, really, I don't actually have any evidence for where it was put, but a likely place is near the Temple of Helios. I've got to ask, therefore, once it is constructed and before it falls down, we'll get to it falling down soon, but during that third century, therefore, for those 60-odd years or so that it is upright and standing, I mean, how does it enhance Rhodes's reputation, its prestige, its power, as these Hellenistic kingdoms are starting to cement, to emerge, whether it's the Antigonids or the Ptolemies or the Seleucids? How does having this massive statue visible for all to see, I guess a legacy of their great defeating of Demetrius the besieger, how does it enhance Rhodes' reputation over those decades? Well, we can only speculate, but I would think it is a statement of Rhodian significance. And one might compare it to Athens with its Parthenon. Again, highly visible. So I think, yes, it's a statement and a statement of Rhodian independence. And in relation to the various kingdoms, something like Ptolemaic Egypt, I mean, they're putting up large statues of the Ptolemies, these sort of large sphinx-like statues, maybe not huge bronze ones, but... uh, Size is an important thing in the Hellenistic world. I mean, thinking about Demetrius, I mean, he's also famous for his huge ships. So making a statement about, you know, we have this huge statue, which is representing us. And we also have to remember it's a religious statue. You know, it's as Strabo describes it, a votive offering. It's not just for the sake of it. It has a significance. And so it's, I suppose, asserting the protection of Helios over Rhodes to anybody approaching it. So what happens to the Colossus, Andrew? 
In the 220s, there is a major earthquake which takes place off Rhodes because Rhodes is, well, there are these fault lines that run through that part of the Mediterranean, running just south of Rhodes. I forget, you have the Anatolian plate and the Arabic plate, is it? I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, so Rhodes is an area which is affected by earthquakes. There's thought to be another one takes place in the 190s BC as well, and then there's another one under the Roman Empire. So this earthquake takes place, and Plibius mentions it. He says about it that an earthquake struck roads and that the city walls were brought down and the shipyards, shipsheds, and the Great Colossus is what he says. So he picks out three things that are affected. He doesn't say anything about impact it might have had on the population or deaths or anything like that. He just tells us about these three structural things. And they're all, I suppose, key elements of roads. I mean, the walls that protected it from Demetrius. When he says the shipsheds, uh, that might seem kind of not so important. But the thing is that a naval power like Rhodes, it wouldn't keep its ships just floating in the harbour like we might consider it. When they're not being used, uh, they're put in shipsheds. And so they will have lots and lots of these sheds with a huge fleet kept, protected in them. So if they collapse, we can imagine that much of the Rhodian navy at the time was destroyed. That was a significant in that respect. Polybius doesn't have much to say about the Colossus, except it fell. But he, what he does say is that the Rhodians went around the kingdoms and cities of the Greek world and they asked for assistance to sort of recuperate for the recovery after this earthquake. Maybe the collapse of the Colossus was something which helped this campaign. But we're told that the kings of the Greek world, the Ptolemies, Seleucids, even the uh, rulers in Syracuse and Sicily, sent enormous amounts of aid. And he describes the huge amount of aid which goes to Rhodes in this period. And interestingly, he tells us that Ptolemy sent, I forget how much it was, but it was a large sum of money for the purpose of rebuilding the Colossus. And we don't, we're not told this by Polybius, we're told this by someone else, I think. But the Rhodians are not sure about this. And they approach an oracle. You know, would this be a sensible thing to do? And they decide that they're not going to rebuild the Colossus. I'm not sure if any source tells us any further as to why, but maybe they just feel, you know, that is fate. But it's not turned to scrap or anything. It's left lying there. It is so interesting, Andrew, isn't it? Because you look at other things like the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus or wherever where things are rebuilt and the money is given there by other patrons and the local population do opt to rebuild it. But with roads, they decide to leave it as it is. But this isn't the end of the statue's existence the crumbled remains of the statue, I'm guessing they must still be quite massive in their own right, and they become tourist attractions in their own right. That's what it seems to be. I mean, I'll read you out a short passage from Pliny describing it, because it's, I think, better the way he puts it than the way I can put it. He, he says, even lying on the ground, it is a marvel. Few people can make their arms meet around the thumb of the figure, and the fingers are larger than most statues. And where the limbs have been broken off, enormous cavities yawn, while inside are seen great masses of rock, with the weight of which the artist steadied it when he erected it. So you get the impression of tourists coming there and clambering over it, and as he says there, you know, trying to hug the thumb and see if they can get their arms round it and this kind of thing. <laughs> so therefore, you have these remains, and they last deep into the Roman period, but what ultimately happens to these remains? They're not visible today. They're not visible today. Now, I mean, later medieval chronicles, there's an 8th century chronicler called Theophanes, and he's one of several, who claim that it was seized during the Arab conquest of Rhodes in the 7th century, so 
century before. But the chronicles are a little, they give the impression that they think that the Colossus was toppled then rather than much, much earlier. And they tell us it was sold to a Jewish merchant and then carried off on 900 camels. Clearly, it can't have been on camels directly from Rhodes because they have to be landed somewhere first. The story may have a kind of anti-Arab, anti-Jewish feeling to it, I think, as well. And I do wonder, by the 7th century, how much of it would have been left. I think that once Christianity has taken over the region, which it certainly would have by the 7th century, that the statue, as a religious object, wouldn't have had the significance it had before. So I could imagine that all this bronze would have been gradually gone long before then. But I mean, that's speculation. What we have is this story. It is so interesting keeping on that legacy of the Colossus after it collapses, because we, just before we completely wrap up, I love that you mentioned Game of Thrones earlier and that you highlighted there is that, I think it's a place called Bravos. It's a rich trading nation, but they have, it seems to be very much the inspiration for George R. R. Martin was the Colossus of Rhodes. And they have, as you say, the statue above the harbour entrance and ships going through their legs, which is that popular perception of the Colossus of Rhodes down through antiquity. You look at Wikipedia or wherever, Google Images, and you just see these antique depictions of the Colossus of Rose. And it's that image again and again and again, isn't it? It's becoming ingrained in our minds almost. Yes, it's quite hard to actually take away the idea that it probably didn't look like that. And we have to think it has to be a kind of statue which is going to readily stand. You know, it's unlikely to, on that scale, to have its arms up in the air or anything like that. It's Helios, so it may have had a kind of radiated crown or something like that which does appear on uh, Rhodian coins. But unfortunately, they don't have an image of Helios standing. So they don't have an image of their own Colossus on their coins, which would have been good if they had. That would have been very helpful, but sadly not. (laughs) But when it does collapse, it breaks in the, I think it's the knees, it's certainly the legs. So whether from the knees down it carried on standing, I'm not sure. But that's the impression the sources give. I mean, Andrew, this has been absolutely fascinating. It's lovely to actually now chat about one of the wonders of the world and to get you on the podcast as you were my professor several years ago at Edinburgh University. I mean, for yourself, you're a leading expert on the Hellenistic world, but also on like Polybius, when Rome meets the Greek world, the Roman conquest and so on and so forth. The bloody nature of Hellenistic court politics and factions and so on. What is it about the Colossus of Rhodes, this massive architectural achievement during the Hellenistic period, that really fascinates you? I think it's the fact that it's size, but also I think the fact that it kind of gives voice to the independent Greek city-state in this period, that it's not all kingdoms and kings and warrior kings, but the polis, as the Greek city-state is described, continues and survives, and Rhodes is a flourishing example of this, until it comes face-to-face with the power of Rome. Well, there you go. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule today. Thanks. Well, there you go. There was Professor Andrew Erskine explaining all about the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and my personal favourite monument from all of ancient Mediterranean history. I find the Colossus of Rhodes and its story, that massive siege with Demetrius the besieger, how the Colossus came to be, I find it all so, so fascinating indeed. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and if you want to help us out in the future as we continue to grow, to get bigger, to get better as 2023 goes on and hopefully deep into the future too, 
where you know what you can do. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us as we continue to grow the podcast, as we continue our infinite mission to share these awesome stories from our ancient history, from prehistory, with you and with as many people as possible. And also so we can give the spotlight to experts such as Andrew, the spotlight that they deserve for the many hundreds of hours, thousands of hours of research, the many years they've put into researching these particular areas from our distant past that they find so fascinating. So if you'd be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating, it really does help us out. But that's enough from me, and I'll see you in the next episode. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.